0: Listening to Understanding Christianity. Welcome to the podcast. Today I'm Pastor Sean Cole. I am the lead pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. This past week I came across a very interesting website entry blog post from SBC Today. Now, SBC Today is a website that I go to from time to time just to see what the traditionalists, non-Calvinists in the Southern Baptist Convention are saying. And most of the time that I go there, um, I don't engage in any of the blog posts because really it's the same people talking over and over again. And you have a few Calvinists that are arguing with, with everybody else on there, and it's, it's not very productive. But this one particular post really caught my attention. It's called Youth Targeted Calvinism. It was posted on October 1st, 2015, Youth Targeted Calvinism. And it's by Dr. Rick Patrick. He's the senior pastor of First Baptist Church, Sila Calga, Alabama. He is the one who moderates sbctoday.com. He's also the leader of the Connect 316 movement within the Southern Baptist Convention. And as I've discussed on previous podcasts and I've talked with Leighton Flowers and others, um, I don't have any problem with the traditional Southern Baptist having a Connect 316 organization or drafting the traditionalist statement or trying to promote their theology. But this post It's very, very disturbing on a bunch of levels. Um, I know James White dealt with it briefly on his podcast, Alpha and Omega Ministries, The Dividing Line. Um, I know others have dealt with it as well. And um, I'm going to try to be as humble as I can in dealing with this because I don't really want to laugh at it. And I don't want to really criticize it harshly with this really um, coarse tone, but but it is concerning to the point of wondering if number one, I have nothing I, I don't know Rick Patrick personally, I just have um, interacted with him on the blog from time to times. Uh, I don't know where he's getting his scholarship on some of these issues. and number two, I'm not exactly sure what this targeting of the youth um, with Calvinism actually is in our churches. And so let me just read to you this post and let me interact with it with some thoughts of my own. He says, Southern Baptist youth groups are filled with young people converting away from the traditional doctrines held by their parents in favor of more Calvinistic views on salvation, church, culture, and ministry. At first glance, this trend seems harmless. And I'm wondering, hopefully he's coming up with a second post where he's going to discuss this trend. I'm not sure what trend he's talking about where there are Southern Baptist youth groups with people converting away from traditional doctrines. Um, I'm not sure. I I don't know. Uh, My church, Emmanuel Baptist Church, is a Reformed Baptist church. And so uh, we don't have young people converting away from traditional Southern Baptist theology because they're brought up uh, believing Reform theology. And so it's not a big issue for them. So I'm not really sure what trend he's seeing. And maybe he's seeing a trend that I'm not aware of. Um, He says this, if anything, the students converting in spellbound droves, spellbound droves to the doctrinal view of Calvinism, take their faith far more seriously than their parents do. What Christian parent is going to oppose a movement that actually encourages their child to read the Bible and study theology? That's an interesting statement. I don't know what empirical evidence he's going to provide for uh, students converting in spellbound droves to Calvinism, and why youth are taking their faith more seriously than their parents. I I'm not sur- I'm not sure of any youth in my church in large numbers that take uh, the faith more seriously than their parents. I think the parents are taking the faith just as seriously as the youth. But uh, these are nitpicky issues. Let me just get down to the real. Issue of what he says. He says the problem created by youth targeted Calvinism, YTC for short, can be divided into two groups. A general problems with Calvinistic doctrines that many parents may not understand, and B the problem with the practice of targeting youth, introducing them to doctrines disaffirmed by their congregation and especially by their own parents. So, what he's going to address is Problems with Calvinism. So these are his problems that he's defining with Calvinism, and they're kind of drive-by. They're real cursory. They're short. Uh, There's not a lot of interaction. Of course, this is a blog post. It's not a theological essay. It's not a doctoral research paper. It's a blog post. So we need to keep that in mind, that there's a limited amount of time. If your blog's too long, people aren't going to read it. So let's look at number one. Number one problem with Calvinism, he says, is where is the love? He says, Calvinism is heavy on power and wrath. It is light on freedom and love. Parents who have labored to instill the message, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, may discover that their teen now rejects this ditty, perhaps viewing it as scornfully simplistic. Teens may even embrace the view of Calvinist Arthur Pink, who wrote, God loves whom he chooses. He does not love everybody so much for all the little children of the world. I want to draw your attention to a podcast that I did last week. It's, it's, it's basically interacting uh, with James Walls, who is an Arminian, and I talk about the issue of God's love. Does God love all people in exactly the same way? If The Bible teaches that God chose some individuals before the foundation of the world to be saved and we know that others are not chosen, they're going to spend eternity in hell, then we have to believe that God does not love all people in exactly the same way. Yes, God is love, according to 1 John 4. Yes, God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and merciful and gracious. That's his character. But he also is discriminant in his love and he He has mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he has compassion on whom he has compassion, and he will harden whom he will harden. And so we as Calvinists may be heavy on power and wrath. I'm not sure what he means by we're heavy on power and wrath and light on freedom and love. Um, And I guess my question for, for him would be do you want a God that's not powerful? And do you want a God that does not? Pour out his wrath on Jesus on the cross, dying in our place. What is wrong with the attributes of God being those of power and wrath? God is absolutely sovereign. He is absolutely powerful. He is a God of justice. He is a God of holiness, but he is also a God of love. Um, they think that he says that we're light on freedom. Now, he's going to define what freedom means later on in this post. Um, and so we'll interact with that when he describes what he means by by freedom. And so he's concerned that these youth and these youth groups are being told that God doesn't love everybody. Um, I remember a time when I was a youth pastor and I was teaching. I was. It was towards the tail end of my tenure at a church I'd served at in Colorado Springs for eight years, and and I knew that God was 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 probably going to be calling me away. I just was going to finish up seminary that year, and I, I just knew that God was was possibly drawing me away from there to to where I am now at Emmanuel. And we were teaching upon the cross, and I was talking about propitiation. I was talking about God's wrath. And I basically said something to the effect of, you know, when Jesus died on the cross, he took the full wrath of God in the place of sinners. And so he took that in our place so we would not have to experience that. And there are those who are in hell right now who are experiencing the wrath of God because they haven't trusted in Christ for salvation. Well, we had a foreign exchange student from Sweden and uh, he was very articulate and he raised his hand and asked a question. And it was a very good question. He said "He said this, Pastor Sean, if what you're saying is true, and if Jesus actually did take God's wrath in his place, and there are people dying in hell because they're suffering God's wrath then would not it make sense that when Jesus died on the cross, he did not die for every single person? Because if he did die for every single person, then the wrath of God would be satisfied and there would be no need for people to suffer in hell. So if people aren't suffering for hell because of God's wrath, then did Jesus not pay for their sins on the cross? And so I was stuck in a moment where all the adults were looking at me and some of the the youth were looking, and how are you going to answer this question? Well, I had to be very careful because the pastor I served under was definitely not a Calvinist. The church was not Calvinistic. I was, and I uh, had gone on that journey through that church. Uh, they had hired me before I had gone on that journey, and so I needed to be real sensitive to make sure that, that the, the doctrine that I taught to the youth was not in opposition to what the church believed in what their parents believed. And so what I basically said was this. I said, that's a great question. Hey, let me give you my personal opinion. I believe that the Bible teaches that Christ only died for those who would believe in him, not for every single person. And there were some parents jaws that dropped that were youth leaders and and there was some commotion. And basically I said this. I said this is not the doctrine of our church. This is not the theology of most of your parents. And so I want to be careful that you don't go down that path of disobeying your parents or not submitting to the authority of the church. Um, and so I had to be real careful. Then later, later on, a couple of students came to me outside of, of class, outside of youth group, and said, hey, I, you're, what you said really made sense. Can you explain this more fully? And I said, well... I need to be real careful as youth pastor that I'm not seen as proselytizing you guys to, to Calvinism. I didn't even use the word Calvinism. Um, but I basically told them, I said, go back. And I took them the scriptures. I said, here's what you need to do. Go back and read John 6. Go back and read John 10. Go back and read John 17. Read Ephesians 1. And read Romans 8 and 9. And then come back to me in about a month and tell me what you learned in those scriptures. And I had a few come back to me and said, wow. I had never seen that in the Bible before. Can we talk more fully about this? And so, yes, there is a possibility that youth pastors would subvert the leadership of their senior pastor, go against the wishes of their parents, and impose a Calvinistic agenda in their church. And I could have been tempted to do that. I was in that position as a youth pastor, where I was a Calvinist, my pastor was not, my minister of music was not, most of the parents were not, and so I had to be very careful, and so I respectively submitted to the leadership and to the parents and did not teach that. Now, since I've left that church, and now I'm a senior pastor at Emanuel Baptist Church, and many of those youth, you know, this, was, this was 10, 12 years ago, now we can have conversations, and many of them have come to embrace the doctrines of grace after the fact. Um... And some of them will, will, you know, Facebook message me and say, hey, you know, back when we were in youth group, you talked a little bit about this. Can you explain it to me? And so five, six, seven years later, I feel like I have the freedom now to, to do that. Um, and so we just need to be careful that, that any youth pastor out there that, and I'm sure this is what Rick Patrick is concerned about, is that youth pastors out there are going against the leadership of their senior pastor and against the leadership of the parents, now here's the second thing that he says is a problem of Calvinism. An angry God question mark Calvinism is associated with neo Puritanism. We tend to view the Puritans as people, peaceful people who dressed modestly and made friends with the Indians. But Calvinist Puritan Cotton Mathers is certainly the most infamous leader responsible for the Salem witch trials. And Calvinist Puritan Jonathan Edwards best articulated the view that God's disposition is primarily angry. That God's disposition is primarily angry. In his best work, Edwards wrote, And this is from Sinners in the Hands of the angry God. He quotes the beginning of the sermon. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of pure eyes than to bear you in his sight. You are 10,000 times an abominable in his sight as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. Yes. That is sinners in the hands of an angry God. And he says this, While it is granted that God pours out his wrath upon sin, and unrepentant sinners will surely burn in hell, Edwards paints the picture of a monstrously capricious deity for whom the singing of Kumbaya, my Lord, on a youth group camp out seems wildly out of place. I'm not sure the last time I ever sang Kumbaya, my Lord, on a youth camp out was, even back in the 80s when I was a youth. But he says Edwards paints a picture of a monstrously capricious deity. I would say to Rick Patrick, you have misrepresented and slandered Jonathan Edwards and his views. I, in seminary, in church history class, did a very extensive research paper on Jonathan Edwards' on his writings on the first great awakening on this particular sermon and i've read source material from jonathan edwards i've read many of his books they take a long time to read especially the religious affections you have to, it almost takes like 3 years to read that book because it's it's so deep and so i'm not an expert on jonathan edwards in any stretch of the imagination but i have read His sermons. I have read his books. And this is a mischaracterization of Jonathan Edwards. He is not picturing a monstrously capricious deity. What is a monstrously capricious deity? A monstrous capricious deity basically is an impersonal God who acts like a monster and who does things willy nilly based upon some arbitrary condition. That is not the God of the Bible. When God elects sinners unto salvation... Ephesians 1 says he does it according to the purpose of his will. So it's not capricious, it's according to his will. He has a sovereign purpose. Now we may not know what that sovereign purpose is, and we may not know why God chooses one particular individual over another individual, and it's not capricious because God is not obligated to choose anybody. Everybody's fallen in Adam. Everybody is dead in their transgressions. And so God has a sovereign right to choose, and it's not capricious, it's according to his sovereign will. But I just want to read to you the rest of the sermon. Yes, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God is a sermon that pictures the the horrors of hell. And it does talk about God's wrath. But I want you to notice that at the end of the sermon, Jonathan Edwards preaches the gospel and preaches the free offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. Just let me just read to you a portion of the end of that famous sermon. He says this, quote, I'm quoting from Jonathan Edwards. Quote, and now you have an extraordinary opportunity a day wherein Christ has flung the door of mercy wide open and stands in the door calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners a day wherein many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God many are daily coming from the east west north and south many that were lately in the same miserable condition that you are in are now in a happy state with their hearts filled with love to him that has loved them and washed them for their sins in his own blood and rejoicing in hope of the glory of God how awful it is to be left behind at such a day, to see so many others feasting while you are pining and perishing, to see so many rejoicing and singing for joy of heart while you have cause to mourn for sorrow of heart and howl for vexation of spirit. How can you rest one moment in such a condition? Are not your souls as precious as the souls of the people at Suffield, which was a neighboring town where they are flocking from day to day to Christ. Notice the evangelistic appeal of Jonathan Edwards. He says, today is the opportune day. You have this extraordinary opportunity. Christ has flung open the doors of mercy. He's crying out with a loud voice to sinners, come to him for forgiveness of sins. Come to him, flee the wrath of God to come. And at the end of the sermon, that's basically what he says, flee the wrath to come and trust Christ for salvation. Now, does that sound like a monstrously capricious deity and a God whose disposition is primarily angry. What Jonathan Edwards understood is that in our gospel preaching, we need to have both law and gospel. And what I mean by that is part of our gospel preaching means when we preach the law, we preach sin, we preach wrath, we preach repentance. We preach that we've fallen short of God's law. We preach that God is holy and He demands uh, perfection and we can't ever live up to that perfection because we're dead in sin and we're under God's wrath and we deserve damnation. But then if that's all you preach, you're preaching half the gospel. You have to preach the bad news before you preach the good news. And the good news is that Christ has solved the problem. Christ has come to satisfy the wrath of God. Christ satisfies the holy justice of God. Christ died on the cross to save sinners from sin. Sin. He's died to forgive you completely of sins. So fly to him, flee, flee to him, fling yourself on him, flee the wrath to come and come to Christ for complete forgiveness of sins. And when you do that, when you come to Christ for salvation, you find his arms wide open, ready to receive any sinner that would repent and believe in him alone for salvation. If you read Jonathan Edwards, that's his, that's his gospel preaching. And so I think he misrepresented Jonathan Edwards' by quoting a portion of sinners in the hands of an angry God, but not quoting the entire sermon. Number three problem with Calvinism, he says this, Calvinism and traditionalism both declare the same gospel, namely that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's a quote from First Corinthians chapter 15. However, he says, God's plan of salvation or the manner in which he works in a person's life to implant the seed of the gospel and to save their soul can be clearly differentiated within each theological position. He goes on to say, the Calvinist believes God determined before the foundation of the world that particular souls would be saved while other particular souls would perish. Yes, we do believe that God determined before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians 1, He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons. Yes, God chose a group of people before the foundation of the world to be saved And in so doing, that means that others were not chosen for salvation. And so God passed them over, leaving them in the just place that they deserved, which is hell because of their sin. And again, God is not obligated to save anybody. So for him to choose to save some and not others is not unjust. It's an act of mercy. Because God could save no one, but he chooses to save those whom he has elected or predestined before the foundation of the world. Now he says this, "...for traditionalists believes God does not choose particular souls irresistibly. Rather, desiring all men to be saved, he saves those exercising their free will to repent and believe when they could have done otherwise." So he defines libertarian free will as this, God doesn't choose anybody particularly, irresistibly. So I'm not sure what view of election he holds to. Does God look down through the corridors of time and see who's going to choose him, and based upon that, God chooses, or does he hold to the corporate view that there's no particular person ever elected in Christ? It was more a plan of salvation. Uh, the the traditionalist view of election says that um, God chose a plan, and the plan was that Jesus would be the savior. And so before time began, God chose Jesus to be the savior and elected this plan of salvation. and the way you get into the plan is in time you freely use your free choice to trust Christ for salvation and once you do that then you get into Christ and therefore you become one of the elect but you individually were never chosen before the foundation of the world to be saved it was this nameless faceless mass of humanity that was chosen in Christ and you get in by using your free will and he says that you could have done otherwise, meaning that you could have not repented and believed. It's your choice whether you repent and believe. Again, denying the doctrine of total inability, that we are dead in sin, that we are dead in our trespasses, that no one can come to Christ without the Father drawing him, that we are um, under his wrath. We're dead in sin. We, we can't come to Christ without God doing that. He says this, This brief description only skims the surface of the differences between Calvinism and traditionalism, Young people turning to Calvinism may embrace, A, a stricter view of church discipline than that held by most Southern Baptists. And that's a disturbing statement, a stricter view of church discipline. He doesn't go on to define what that is. What's a stricter view of church discipline? Because most Southern Baptists, according to statistics, 2 to 4% of churches practice church discipline. Which means if you're just going by statistics, then most Southern Baptists don't even practice church discipline. They don't even have a church covenant where they hold people accountable. They don't have a process of Matthew 18 or 1 Corinthians 5 where the church gathers together to make major decisions on whether you excommunicate somebody from membership. Uh, In two churches I've been in, one, non-Calvinistic, the church I was in in Colorado Springs, they exercised church discipline because the pastor that I served under believed what the Bible said and practiced biblical church discipline. The church that I'm at now, we've done various degrees of church discipline. Uh, Behind the scenes with elders, publicly calling meetings, we've never had to excommunicate somebody. We almost got to that point, but he repented and held himself accountable to the church, but the entire church gathered to do that. And so I don't know why he would be bothered by a stricter view of church discipline than that held by most Southern Baptists. Because if that's the, if the, if that's the standard, most Southern Baptists, then that means no church discipline. We're, we're not going to even do it at all. Okay. B, an affinity for elder rule church government instead of congregational rule. Now, I would just change the wording there and say not elder rule, but elder led. We are an elder-led congregation, not an elder rule. Now, most Presbyterian models have more of an elder rule model. We are a Southern Baptist church that still has congregational rule, and it's elder-led, meaning that the elders are set apart as men, godly men, to lead the church, and so as elders, we oversee the theology, the doctrine, the vision, the direction, the purpose, the finances, the discipline, the protecting, the shepherding, the prayer, all, the ministries. We oversee the church. We lead. We don't rule with an iron fist. We still have congregational votes. We, we're actually going to be voting this Sunday Sunday. Um, on an issue related to um, going into a little bit more of indebtedness. We built a new building back in 2009 and um, our interest rate is being raised uh, with, our, with our, um, the people we have our loan with, uh, the New Mexico Baptist Foundation. And so they are asking for church approval to make sure that if we are going to change the interest rate and, and do this, that the church is voted. Our constitution says that any type of indebtedness needs to have a vote of the congregation, and so we abide by our constitution, and so we're going to have a business meeting where the church is going to rule and vote on whether we go forward with this. But the elders are the ones that have led this process. The elders are the ones that have done the research. The elders are the ones that are bringing the recommendation. So that's just one example. Uh, And again, he just gives these lists of things that... um, that young people that are embracing Calvinism turn to, and he just lists them without any qualifications. Uh, they're, they're given in to a stricter view of church discipline. Uh, they they actually may start believing that elders, a plurality of elders, should actually lead the church. Number C. And this one was kind of funny. A tendency to reject dispensational premillennialism in favor of the other views of end times. Uh, it, <laughs> The funny thing about this is that the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, the Baptist Faith and Message 63, the Baptist Faith and message, message 1925 do not specifically set forth which end times view one must subscribe to. And it's only within recent history that Southern Baptists have really embraced dispensationalism. It wasn't until basically the 70s with Jerry Falwell and um, the late great Planet Earth with Hal Lindsey and Jerry Jenkins and uh, Tim LaHaye with the Left Behind books. That mainstream dispensationalism moved into the Southern Baptist Convention, and nowadays, uh, most you know, if you're a traditional Southern Baptist, well, that's just the only view—a dispensational hermeneutic. Whereas the, in Southern Baptist circles, we've never made it a litmus test to have a particular end times view, and so. Obviously, I'm not a dispensationalist. Most young people today are rejecting dispensationalism because it's got a lot of holes in it. Uh, they're going and off to seminary, and they're learning the languages, and they're, they're, they're learning covenant theology and these other types of things, and they're realizing that dispensationalism is really a thing of the past. I have a friend; he will remain nameless, but he is a um, he's someone of a famous pastor. He's written some books, and um, he's a pastor of a church. And um, he has you know taught at um, different seminaries, and um, if I were to mention his name, you'd, you'd know who he was, most of, most of you listening. Uh, but he, he was having a conversation with me and a couple other pastors one time, and here's what he said. He says, "Dispensationalism will be a blip on the radar of church history in the next 20 years. It will be gone now. That's just a prophetic statement by him that may or may not be true, and I don't think he was acting as a prophet. I think he was just saying that, you know, this younger generation is not buying into dispensationalism. Okay, let's look at number D, a less stringent view regarding the use of beverage alcohol, and I don't necessarily have a problem with that because I am a teetotaler. Um, And I'm not a teetotaler because I believe the Bible teaches that. I'm a teetotaler because of two things. Number one, here's here's the two reasons why I do not drink. First of all, I do not drink because as pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church, I do not want to do anything that would be a stumbling block to those in my congregation. I have those in my congregation that have come out of alcoholism. I have those who have spouses that have dealt with alcoholism. And I don't want to do anything to be a stumbling block to where it would be confusing. And so I choose to refrain from the liberty I believe I have to drink because of my position as pastor, so that's the main reason. Number two is because I have seen alcoholism destroy not my immediate family but my extended family, and so I just have a a disdain for what it does in 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 people's lives. And so it could be that there is some freedom from um, some some young restless and reformed people. Um, I know there's some podcasts that come out there, pubcasts, where you know these reform guys go in there and talk about all the different types of beer they're brewing and the different types of cigars they're smoking and I personally have a problem with that. Um, I think they're flaunting their religious freedom in a way that is um, a little bit too much for me and um, I don't have any problem with statements from our Southern Baptist Convention on abstaining from alcohol as long as you don't make it a biblical case because biblically you cannot make the biblical case that any type of drinking is sinful. Uh, getting drunk obviously is sinful, but drinking alcohol is not sinful. Jesus drank at a wedding. Uh, the Lord's Supper was with alcohol. And I don't know if most people believe this, but Baptists practiced Lord's Supper with actual alcohol really almost up until prohibition in the 1920s when things kind of changed. So that was that that's that's one of his issues. Um E, a suspicious approach towards evangelism utilizing altar calls and the sinner's prayer. A suspicious approach. Let me just say this. We stopped using altar calls and sinner's prayers a long time ago. As a matter of fact, I don't think I ever really used, per se, the sinner's prayer. But out here in Colorado, in the West, it just doesn't work culturally. Culturally. It's not a sacred cow that Southern Baptists have to have. I think the problem with the, the, the SBC today and Rick Patrick and Connect 316 is they're equating Southern, Southern Baptist practices that, 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 that they're viewing as sacrosanct or sacred cows that have to be practiced by all Southern Baptists. And out here in the West, there's, there's no concept of an altar call. People don't understand that. Um, and so, what we do at our church? Let me just explain what we do. I preach the gospel every Sunday. I extend a call for all people to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. It's, every message that I preach, well, and I preach expository sermons. There's always a call to repent and believe. And and I'll say something like this at the after after the prayer that I pray at the end of the service. We don't have an altar call where people come up while we're singing and people flock into the aisles. I say something like this: Hey, listen. If this message has impacted you in some way to where you are under conviction or you're confused or you need prayer or you need to ask questions or you need clarification, I and Pastor Andrew, our youth pastor and others, our elders and deacons, will be down here at the front. And after the service, if you'd like to come down and pray with us, we'd love for you to do that. Now, in a sense, that is somewhat of an inter- of an invitation it 's not an altar call where we 're calling people to come down while we 're singing you know five stanzas of just as I am and everybody 's staring at you and you it 's more of an opportunity after this worship service is over for inquirers, as Charles Spurgeon would call it, to come and to ask questions um, and so some of these things are biblical uh, altar calls and sinners prayers are not found in the Bible those are man made practices that started in The Second Great Awakening under Charles Finney and basically got popularized in the 20th century with Billy Sunday and Billy Graham crusades. And so there's nothing biblical about having a sinner's prayer or an altar call, and there's nothing biblical about not having a sinner's prayer and not having an altar call. The point is it's not in the Bible. The Bible teaches you that, that, that evangelism is the proclamation of the gospel and calling all people to repent and believe, but it never subscribes that you have to have somebody walk through a sinner's prayer and you have to have a time at the end of the service where people walk up to the front while music's playing. The last thing he says here is the avoidance of denominationally sponsored events in favor of broadly evangelical conferences. Broadly evangelical conferences. And I understand what he's saying here. Uh, just think about it. Every two years, I go to the Together for the Gospel Conference in Louisville, Kentucky. I went to the very first one in 2006. I've already registered for the one in 2016. And it's, I don't know if it's broadly evangelical, it's mainly Southern Baptist and Presbyterian and Bible Church because uh, you've got Matt Chandler, David Platt, Al Mohler, Mark Dever. Okay, you've got your Southern Baptist guys on there. You've got John MacArthur. Who is a Baptistic Bible church? You got R. C. Sproul, Presbyterian, Legan Duncan, Presbyterian. You got John Piper, Baptist. You've got CJ Mahaney, who's a little bit more uh, charismatic, but moving more Baptistic. And so it's not why I don't think it's wildly wide broadly evangelical, but together for the gospel, gospel coalition, Acts 29, 9 Marks. There are these movements and these conferences that the younger generation is going to in droves, and they're not going to their annual meetings. They're not going to their state convention meetings. They're not going to their youth camps. They're not going to their state evangelism conferences. They're not going to the national SBC. And I I understand his concern. If we don't do something, we will lose the younger generation when it comes to the business of the convention. Now, having served as the president of the Colorado Baptist General Convention uh, for two years and serving on the executive board and also being on some national committees of the SBC and being a trustee on, on, on a seminary board, I understand the importance of getting the younger generation involved in the process. But I also don't think there's anything wrong with Avoiding Denominationally Sponsored Events in Favor of Broadly Evangelical Conferences. It shows that those broadly evangelical conferences are actually meeting the needs of the younger generation. And then G, a tendency to frown upon existing Southern Baptist practices. I have no idea what he means by that. What what existing Southern Baptist practices uh, are they frowning upon? Again, uh, the problem with this blog is, number one, it lacks some historical precision when it comes to Jonathan Edwards, number two, it's got these flyby statements without qualification or without interaction, and just kind of these these accusations, a tendency to frown upon existing Southern Baptist practices. Well, well, what Southern Baptist practices are you talking about? Um, what what? How do you define these things? And then he's you know the, the ultimate issue that he's dealing with in this blog is that there's this conspiracy that they're the young. People in droves across youth groups in Southern Baptist churches en masse are converting to Calvinism like never before, and that it's concerning. And again, is there empirical evidence for this? Is there a way that you can prove youth-targeted Calvinism? He also says this. He says, Minor views do not rise to the level of Calvinism's comprehensive theological system. Before students in a traditional Southern Baptist church are introduced to the writings or the theology of Calvin, Piper, Spurgeon, Edwards, MacArthur, Keller, Sproul, or Dever, youth ministers need to sit down with the parents and make sure they know what is being taught. What is being taught. And I agree with that. Yes, youth pastors need to sit down with parents to make sure that they know what's being taught. Um, and it could be that... He's concerned with the Gospel Project that's come out with Lifeway because there's been some accusations that the Gospel Project has some Calvinistic leanings. Um, I know for our, our youth pastor, he has used Tim Keller's material with our youth. He has used R.C. Sproul's Holiness of God with youth. He's used Piper. With youth, our adults have used John MacArthur's Bible studies. Um, We don't use a lot of the Lifeway curriculum as a Southern Baptist church. We just found that most of it's vacuous and pretty, pretty um, soft, or pretty, pretty. um, What's the word I'm looking for? Watered down. And so I would say, what parent wouldn't want their child reading Calvin and Piper and Spurgeon and Edwards and you know John MacArthur and Tim Keller? Um, I think parents need to be reading those as well. Now, ultimately, the issue is this. Who is ultimately responsible for the discipline, the discipleship, and the evangelism of children? Is it a paid youth pastor or is it the parent? And I strongly believe it's the parent. Biblically, you don't find any biblical mandate for a youth pastor per se. Now, we at Emmanuel Baptist Church have a youth pastor. He's doing an awesome job. He is solid theologically. He's in seminary about to finish up in a year. He and I have staff meeting every week where we talk about curriculum. We talk about issues going on. He has a great network of youth leaders that he has in our church that he trains and disciples. He interacts with parents. And so he's doing a great job. Uh, but he is not the soul discipler of the youth and children of Emmanuel Baptist Church. The parents are. And so my job and his job, both as pastors, are to equip parents to lead their families. And so we do that. We try to equip especially fathers in our church to catechize their children, to lead their children, to do family worship with their children. We teach the parents solid theology so they can share that with their children Uh, the youth are being taught strong theology in conjunction with what their parents are being taught so that the entire church is being built up not just the parents and so um, yes it needs to be a joint effort between a youth pastor and a parent but ultimately the parent has the primary responsibility now i look forward to rick patrick's part two um, where he's going to talk about, um, he says, in part two, we will explore how youth targeted Calvinism is being promoted today and consider specific case studies. I want to see that. I want to see what the case studies are. I want to see how, because he's made some bold claims. He's made some bold claims. He's made some unqualified statements. Um, and he's, he's, he's made, um, made it look like it's an epidemic that, what is the word he said? They're, they're going in droves. Students are converting in spellbound droves the doctrines of Calvinism. Spellbound droves. I want to know what empirical evidence he has that youth are converting in spellbound droves to the doctrine of Calvinism. And so, again, from time to time, you come across these blogs, SBC Today, and you read them and you're like, what in the world is going on now? And, 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 and as a pastor, I felt like on this podcast, I just needed to maybe a rant. It's a Friday afternoon. It's been a long week. And uh, sometimes you come across these things and you're like, you know what, I gotta, I just got to get this thing off my chest. And so having a podcast, is, you've got the freedom to be able to do that. And so thank you for listening to this rant about this issue um, again. We didn't really dive into the scriptures or do anything like that. Um, I have many other um, podcast um, episodes that you can listen to that are going on right now on this podcast, Understanding Christianity. Uh, you can look at things related to revival. I'm preaching through Hebrews on Wednesday nights. We're posting those up there. So, giving you a lot of different options to choose from. One thing you could do to help, just to help um, get the word out as far as understanding Christianity, is that you can rate us on iTunes, put a rating up there, put some comments. Um, You can copy this link into your Facebook or your Twitter, let others know about it. If you find this podcast valuable, if you find it helpful and you want others to listen to it, email them the link, um, use social media to to promote it. Um, I'm not doing this because I think it's, I'm trying to get my name out there, Sean Cole. No, I just really believe that there is a lack of biblical theology in our world. And I'm just a small voice um, I don't have a huge platform and just a small voice. Uh, that wants to make sure that my church specifically is discipled, but as an extension of Emmanuel Baptist Church and as an extension of my ministry um, as pastor and also as seminary or, or as a, as a college professor at, at CCU, um, I just want to have a wider reach to, to reach those that are listening right now that may have these questions. And so again, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I hope you have a great day. May God bless you. May God keep you. May He cause His face to shine upon you until. Now- next time, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Thanks for listening.